Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Trent Moffat, the Moffat Family Vineyards. Uh, We're in uh, Dundee. It's December 11th, 2019. Thank you so much for joining us today, Trent. We appreciate this. Thanks for coming out. Uh, Let's start with the most important question of all, which is why wine? Well, it was uh, kind of pretty simple, really, in the sense that I grew up on a winery. Uh, Although when you are forced to participate in things, you don't always uh, then want to do them as a career. So uh, I kind of fought it, but we, uh, my my parents got, uh, moved to the Napa Valley in 1975. And we were, uh, my dad was in oil and gas exploration and kind of, um, kind of get the record straight that I was raised by my stepdad who uh, married my mom when I was just a few years old so he raised me he's my dad mm-hmm. um, and his last name is Livingston so when we started the name of the winery was Livingston and then he named the vineyard Moffat Vineyards after my uh, after my side of the family mm-hmm. and my two brothers so uh, but we bought a old farmhouse that had uh, one bathroom, no TV, heated by a wood-burning stove, and uh, the labor in the vineyards was my brothers and uh, and myself, uh, along with the crew. My dad is—he's uh, a originally a geologist, and he was in oil and gas exploration, and got his doctorate degree in geology, and so he's all about earth and growing and so we spent a lot of time in the vineyards pruning um, you know kind of cleaning up things the the old property was uh, houses built in the 1860s and the winery in the 1880s so and it was one of those things that um, the Napa Valley has a book called Ghost Wineries of the Valley and this was one of those old ruins so with the depression and prohibition a lot of those wineries went out of business and crops like walnuts or prunes um, came into the valley and so um, H.W. Helms was the name of the guy who built the old old winery and uh, my dad we bought it at bank foreclosing auction in 1975 and he was the only guy to show up so it shows what the Napa Valley was like back mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. Uh, today it's a whole different story. <laughs> so, um, so we did a, a lot of growing and selling our fruit, and we sold to Chapelet Vineyards, um, to Rombauer, a uh, number of different people. But we would still be out tending in the, in the vines, and I wanted to go ride my motorcycle with my buddies and you know do all the things that you do as a kid. And uh, it's like, nope, today we're out in the vineyard. So I kind of grew up hating the industry mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways. I wouldn't say hating, but uh, definitely not super excited to get into it. Resenting a little bit. Yeah, and then once we dug our caves and started making wine in 1984, um, we, uh, the workload changed significantly. And then all of a sudden it was rolling barrels around and helping with racking and mm-hmm. uh, just, I mean, I remember hand pressing the first few vintages and it was still gravel out front and trying to press like a hand cranking, you know, where you stack the wood pieces and trying to do that on gravel is not fun. <laughs> so um, we had some really 
interesting long uh, fun days. I mean, I'm, I must say, looking back on it now, uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world, but at the time I was definitely cursing it inside my head. So, uh, but then my, my dad in, uh, it, was a, it was a Thanksgiving meal. We had rented a house out at a place called the Sea Ranch on the coast. And he opened up a uh, 1982 Mount Eden Pinot Noir out of a Magnum uh, from the Santa Cruz Mountains. And that bottle of wine was my aha moment, in a sense, where wine went from something that you used to go steal from your parents to drink with your buddies to how do they make that? Mm -hmm. I want to know more about this. And it, it would just, a light went on and uh, decided that, that this was actually a pretty cool industry and was shocked how much I knew without really thinking I knew anything at all. But I had sure. been in it my, my whole life. And... Um, really just kind of uh, changed everything. I started looking at the industry and how I could get in and um, you know, worked in New Zealand and um, just started working at other wineries and um, having fun with it. So that was kind of kind of how I got in. So was was really that that kind of moment. Mm -hmm. Then I started teaching uh, some um, well, not teaching, but I started a tasting group with a little bit of the university's money. Uh, I couldn't buy alcohol, but I could buy stemware and rent buses and things like that um, for my liter uh, literary society that I formed. <laughs> and uh, we, um, we, I filled up big buses and we did trips to, to different wine regions around California and uh, just had a blast with it. And that's when I really started taking wine to a to another level on learning about regions and um, why wines are structured in different ways from different areas and teaching it to people. So, um, so it was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Guess so. Yeah. So talking about that, you, you have you have the aha moment. Is is it? At what point do you think about making wine your your life or your career? Is is is, is it then? Is it, does it kind of grow as you're in school, or is there a point where you're like, this is what I want to do with my life? It was. I was in college, and um, I would I would help my parents doing tastings and things like that. So I really got to see all the different facets of the industry at a really young age without pressure, you know, and without having to earn a paycheck at the time, you know, and and you know, not that this is a great paycheck, but <laughs> but I did love all those different facets and watching how, depending on the time of year, the different things that you were doing, mm -hmm. I felt like there were so many different jobs that you had that um, I couldn't see myself sitting at a desk doing one thing because I, I love moving around, I love people, mm -hmm. and it's such a social industry. Um, you know, one of the first things my, my mom had told me was, um, you know, become friends with other people in the industry because you're gonna spend most of your time with them, which is really true because all the events, the, the charity auctions, uh, traveling for with the Napa Valley Vintners Association and uh, now up here with the Dundee Hills Growers Association. So, um, you know, I, I think that because of that, being able to make something and then market it and sell it and then enjoy um, timelines of it, being able to do vertical tastings and look at how things change each year, all those things fascinated me. So I kind of jumped full in after having that that kind of a waking moment of, of wanting to understand how wine was made mm -hmm. and what made 
that bottle of wine in particular stand out to me when I had had tons of wine. I mean, so it was, but why, why, was, why was that bottle so important? And, um, you know, I just actually put in the ground some Mount, uh, Mount Eden clone um, that I got first fruit off of this year. So, awesome. so, so it's full circle finally because Napa, we don't do a lot of, of Pinot. So, um, and I've been up here now for five years. So I finally have some fruit coming on with it. So, so tell me about the, the process then once you decided, once you kind of had that moment, how did you learn uh, the, what you needed to know to do what you wanted to do? Yeah, well, and that was kind of the, the funny thing is I, I, like I was saying, I did realize how much I actually mm -hmm. did know already. Um, we were making all our wine on our, on our property at that time, so it was you know, very easy to just move in and start working with our different consultants and my mm -hmm. father. Uh, but then I met um, a guy by the name of Grant Taylor through Gary Andrus, um, you know, who uh, owned Pine Ridge and then moved up here to start Archery Summit and his wife did Gypsy Dancer and, you know, Dan Danielle, who I grew up with, uh, she married Laurent and started uh, Northwest Wine Company and Selena and all the different ones. So she was one of my first calls coming up here. Um, but there, um, where was I going on that? Um, how you oh yeah so I met the Grant Taylor and he was would come up on the off season from New Zealand and work at Pine Ridge and so Grant offered me a job he said hey come on down and do a harvest with me down in Queenstown mm -hmm. and so I went down there and worked at Gibson Valley um, that's where I really took on the, the making of Pinot Noir because mm -hmm. uh, again now the wineries that I was running around we were cab and Bordeaux varietals so um, you know but that was um, pretty lucky just having the connections that I did I was very blessed that way I mean our very first winemaker was Randy Dunn uh, after him was uh, Greg Graham, who was the first winemaker at Rombauer. Um, then I worked with uh, John Kongsgard when he left Newton Vineyards. Um, after John, we hired uh, Marco De Giulio, who had just left La Coya Cardinal Projects. Um, so all those people, it's just a web. <laughs> and I was able to network so easily. Um, I started a little brokerage company right out of college, and I sold Kongsgard, Arietta. Um, I had my own label by that time called um, called C and T Sellers. Actually, it started as H W Helms, which was the old winery, mm -hmm. um, and then I changed it when I married my wife to C and T Sellers, and we did some pretty fun labels. And um, I, I started uh, another label called Screenplay. I started a label called Gauge Wines, which was my hunting label. Uh, so I had all these things in a book, and I was running around selling friends' wines and um, traveling all around California, sleeping on sofas straight out of college, partying like mad. Uh, life was good, <laughs> you know, <laughs> selling my parents' juice, but others as well. So uh, and then when I decided to really get into the business, it was I had to I eventually got rid of my, my brokerage book and um, went in full-time with my parents. So before we get into that, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned the year AHA wine being a Pinot Noir, not having been exposed to much Pinot Noir where you mm -hmm. were. As you went down to New Zealand and, and, and elsewhere and started to kind of learn about Pinot Noir, what was it that, that got you so intrigued in it? Uh, what, what is it about Pinot Noir that was, that was so exciting to you? For me, it was uh, how many different styles of Pinot you can find. 
You know, it's it's one of those delicate varietals that can be very feminine or very masculine in flavors and structure, um, and they all serve their own purpose. And I mean, and they really do. Um, you can just do so much with it, and I think I was intrigued by that because growing up in the Napa Valley, it's. I mean, you do a blind tasting of a bunch of Cabernets, which we would do all the time, and it's like, okay, that's Cabernet. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, you get some variation, but they're not as dramatic and, and as Pinot. And Pinot is just so fun to play with and taste and talk about. It really does um, have so many layers and delicacies to it that I really enjoy. And I love rosé and Pinot too, and champagne. So, you know, I mean, really, Pinot could do so much. So, so let's talk about you, when you when you decided to get serious and you decided to get back in, into your family business. Something about that uh, and the sort of the transition into eventually taking over that business. Or? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, my, my my folks started with just one wine, and that was our Moffat Vineyard Cabernet. And when I graduated from college, they were just introducing uh, their second wine, which was called Stanley Selection, off the pun of Dr. Livingston, I presume. And so Stanley was our you know, mid-range, and then our estate wine was the Moffat Vineyards. And I'm the youngest of six kids. We're like a Brady Bunch family. So the Livingston kids all grew up here in Oregon. So that we'll, we'll talk about later, but that my brother and two sisters were, grew up here, mm -hmm. and then all the Moffat kids, we grew up on the winery. So, um, so I had been coming up this way for, for a long time, but um, they were all into their careers by the time the winery was at a place of growth. Mm -hmm. We doubled our production with that one wine right away. And so I was looking at um, a distributor job actually in the East Coast uh, to kind of learn more on that side. And I remember sitting down with my parents and they said, well, if you go do that, we're gonna have to hire somebody else and then we don't know when that door will be open again. Mm -hmm. So if you really wanna get into this industry, you know, the timing for jumping in with the family winery is now. And so, and then I'd already been selling and doing my broker business and um, doing that for a while. So I, I decided uh, to not let somebody else fill my spot. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I jumped right in. So. And what were you doing when you, when you started back up? What was your role in, in, the, in the business? Um, you know, it's funny. We, uh, my brother later joined us and he was one that wanted to have a title and we were not title people. Um, I mean, it was just my parents and myself. We had no full-time employees ever. Uh, we had our consulting winemaker and that was our, our help. And then we had a bookkeeper that would come in a uh, day or two a week, um, but, but that was it. So we, we joked around and we called my mom the Minister of Finance because she kind of held the books together. Unless there was a troubled distributor mm -hmm. and you wanted somebody really tough to go in and talk to them, you said my mom. Mm -hmm. So my mom, <laughs> she's she's one tough lady. Um, my dad and I are, you know, we're, we're not nearly as strong as she is when it comes to that. Uh, but she really stayed more back. I mean, she did a, plenty of sales and distributor work as well. But um, uh, my dad and I, 
kind of divided up the country. We actually sat down and did that because we're like, okay, we're going to double. We need to open up more states. So seeing that he went to Rice for his doctorate, he's like, I'm going to take Texas. And I'm like, well, that's really big. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm going to take both the Carolinas. Then, you know, and so and then we just started. Um, dividing it up and we took on uh, we had a little friendly competition on who could outsell who and that game lasted for almost 19 years um, but we uh, we had a lot of fun with it but then you know we would make our schedules so we were there to rack and to you know harvest time we were there doing all the the winemaking and uh, with the help of our consultant but yeah no no employees we finally I want to say it was in the late 90s we started bringing in an intern and it started kind of crushing us a little bit <laughs> but uh, so there was really every facet there was I, I can't think of one thing that I haven't done so I mean it's um, and, I, and I, I think that's one of the amazing things about this industry is that that story rings through this whole valley and any wine country. Um, nobody can specifically say, well, I do this. It's like, well, I know that everybody does a little bit more than that. So it's, uh, so eventually the story ends up with you in Oregon. So I'm curious, this between you going back into the family business and coming here, uh, what were the steps along the way that led you to eventually coming here? Well, they don't all have to do with wine. Um, you know, the my parents decided in 2005, and this was basically what how it started. Uh, we were in the Mare Island warehouse fire, so there's 100 plus wineries or so in that warehouse. Um, we had all our library in there, oh. and we had just bottled our 03 vintage, so and put it in there. So we lost um, 84 through 2003, oh. pretty much everything except for some big bottles and um, a few cases that were sitting in our kind of shipping locker in my, down at my brother's house. Um, and at that same time, we were back in a little battle um, with Gallo over the use of the name Livingston. So they started in the 50s, I think it was, they had Livingston Cream Sherry and um, then they changed their jug wines from Ernest and Julio Gallo to Livingston Cellars. And at that time, um, they called us up and said, we don't want you using the name Livingston anymore. And we had approached them back in the early 80s, my dad did. And they were like, yeah, it's fine. But they wouldn't really sign any mm -hmm. paperwork mm -hmm. for that. So um, in the 96 vintage, so it must have been a couple years after that, so it was probably in 98 or so, um, they had us change our name from Livingston to Livingston Moffat. And so the Moffat went from the vineyard now up to the name of the wines, and then we changed it to a state Rutherford versus having uh, Moffat on there twice. Um, but then in 05, they didn't want us using the name Livingston at all anymore. So my dad says, well, you know, shit, I can't, <laughs> I don't have any wine, can't use my name. You know, bought it at an auction back in 75, 30 years later, the whole Napa Valley is a little bit different. And he's like, 
maybe there's a good time to sell. So they, they came to me and um, asked, you know, what I thought of it, uh, which I thought was very sweet of them because I, you know, it was theirs, not mine. Uh, and I told them I'd be fine. I'd figure out, you know, my own thing. And, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you have an option in the wine business. You can go to the end like Robert Mondavi and promote and, and be a promoter or, or you sell. And uh, my parents, small small wineries is a struggle and in and out of, you know, everything's leveraged to the winery. Um, there is no way I could buy them out because I couldn't provide them with the life that they wanted to do after. Um, so yeah, so we ended up selling the, the winery and uh, we stayed another two years, the Lees who bought it um, they didn't know what they were going to do with it. So they said, well, just stay there and you can keep making wine and Philippe Melka is going to make ours, so he'll be coming in. But, you know, you guys can still keep making wine here and uh, we'll just let you know when we want you to move out. So we stayed another two years on the property, you know, rent-free. Pretty cool. <laughs> um, but uh, at that time, I <clears throat> that's when I started my Moffitt label. So without being able to carry on the Livingston name, I went to the Moffitt um, label and started in, in 2005 with that. So, um, and then with that, I bought some land up on Hell Mountain uh, as a 20 acre parcel and uh, cleared, planted a little over three acres of it and was hoping to put a, a winery permit on it. Um, and then either, and I jointly bought it with my folks, they helped with it. Um, and then we were either going to sell that and use that as a stepping stone to get the land that I would need for a winery. But through that process dealing with the Napa Valley and California, <clears throat> the regulations, looking at the costs, watching fruit prices go from 45, 4,800 a ton to 12,000 a ton. Uh, my old property sold um, in the 14 vintage at, at 10,500 a ton. You know, and the old formula that would have to be basically a $150 bottle of wine. Um, never been comfortable with those kind of price points. You know, I'm not a big fan of super expensive wines. I just, um, and my family never hit the $100 mark and we're actually proud of that. I mean, it wasn't a goal to get to be the most expensive wine. It was to make really nice wine for people. So, um, so I talked to my dad and said, you know, well, uh, how'd you do it? He's like, well, the Napa Valley was different in 75. You gotta look somewhere else and, you know, see what, see what you can do. And uh, seeing that I had family up here, which I'm very close to, uh, wasn't a huge leap. Uh, my wife and I actually came up here for only uh, 36 hours. My parents were watching the kids. I don't think they had any clue we were looking at houses, honestly, because my mom was pissed. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have been getting coal in my stocking for ever since, you know? And um, oh man, she was, I remember her making a list one day and she was weeping and I said, you know, mom, what are you, What's wrong? What's going on? She's like, I'm making a list of all the things that went wrong this year, and you're at the top of the list. You know, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, and she comes up a lot, and we embrace her. And, and uh, you know, my dad's a little more like a guy. You know, I just not as emotional about it. But you know, I took her three young little uh, grandkids, even though they're 13, 14, 15, or 16. She has 16 grandchildren, but uh, still mine are really young and all the other ones are getting married. 
So um, she was really, really involved, and we lived about a mile away from each other on Hell Mountain, and so that was hard. But we were here for real quick, and um, you know, found a. My wife never even saw the house until the final inspections. So I found she's like, well, they're going to this school, and you go find your house and your land, and uh, we'll go from there. So. But I needed I needed somewhere where I could do it on my own without looking for investors. Mm -hmm. So, so how what were you looking for, and what did you eventually find when it, when it came? What did you have in mind for your for your property? Well, I, I needed to be in the Sherwood School District, so that was very important to my wife, um, and. The uh, I, I needed you know the the right exposure and soil, so I I hired a guy. Um, oh gosh, what's his first name? Peter Boatsman. Do you know him? To Peter, gosh, am I getting as bad? I can't remember. I'll think of it. But um, anyway, he does a lot of consulting, land consulting. So it wasn't really looking for a house. It was more looking for the right soils. So um, we went around and found up on Parrot Mountain a, a nice lot. Um, I had talked with Yamhill County about being undersized and being able to put a tasting room and things like that. And they were very casual and very nice. Um, unfortunately, that was Clactimus County. <laughs> and Clactimus County has a very different, you know, they're, they're, there's just not a lot of wineries in Clactimus County, so they look at you as a fruit stand trying to sell alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, so it, they, um, I ended up selling that property. I we moved into town, and you know, and I found enough leased land around here uh, to keep keep my vineyards all going. So, uh, but that's what we were what I was looking for, and we found a great parcel that we just never. I never had to plant it, which was great. Mm -hmm. You know, I did that in Howe Mountain and. My parents made that look fun and easy, but it's brutal and it sucks. <laughs> you know, it's writing checks for seven years, waiting for you know to sell your first bottle of wine. I mean, that's what the, for Howe Mountain Cab. It was uh, you know you got your three years, three and a half years with the fruit, and that first fruit isn't anything super special. Uh, but then you do over two years in barrel. I usually do about two and a half, and then bottle for a year. I think by the time I released my first, my 09 Hell Mountain, I had consumed like 10% of it. So it was, <laughs> it was like, you know, it was, you know, business 101, I, I failed. Um, but yeah, I wasn't super excited to jump back into planting a vineyard. And so I lease the Terrarosa Vineyard here. Uh, I have another one in the Jehalem Mountains with a lot of different clones that we got going there. Um, so uh, it was, uh, hooking up with Sterling Fox, if you know Sterling. Mm -hmm. um, he is amazing and he now farms every vineyard that that I'm in. Mm -hmm. So I really trust him. Mm -hmm. so. You keep looking at my shoulder, do I have a bug here? You have a bug. <laughs> Sorry, bug lovers. <laughs> so when uh what were you? What kind of vineyards were you looking for? Do you, you have an idea when you're talking about soil types? What, what did you want out of the vineyards you were going to work with? Yeah, I, I wanted to learn why all the sub-appellations were defined. And so for me, the most important thing was to go find vineyards in all these different AVAs and then to work with them and, and try to figure out what, was, what spoke to me and which areas I wanted to work with, um, in which I fell in love really with them all. They're, they're very unique. Um, so I have uh, the Dundee Hills, Jehalem, 
um, I have Yamhill Carlton and the Ole Amity. So um, great diversity and uh, you know treat them in the beginning you're trying extended macerations, cold soaks, all these different formulas, all the um, you know, we were playing with, with a bunch of whole cluster, different percentages mm -hmm. with each site. So my vineyard designated wines were really small in the beginning because I was trying to find what, that, what was speaking to me with that site and what I wanted to produce from it. But I needed to try all these things, so I made a reserve bottling, which I'm not a big fan of the name reserve. Um, but and then I had a Willamette bottling for all those to kind of go into. Uh, now that I know how to work with each of these sites and the way and and work with the expression that I'm trying to find, um, now my single vineyards are growing in quantity, and my I don't make a reserve anymore, and my Willamette's getting smaller. So uh, yeah, so but I, they're all different. Soils, exposures, um, you know, ripen at definitely very different paces. I mean, the um, Malaris vineyard that I have over in the Jalen Mountains, that is uh, right now five acres in the ground with seven different clones. So, I mean, Sterling went in four times this year to pick, and our total tonnage was maybe 10. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like, hey, Sterling, we got to get that 0.7 acres of Mount Eden because it's ready now, you know. And um, but I love that small. It's like my little quilt over there of clones. I got, you know, three different Chardonnay clones and um, four different. Well, three. Yeah, four different Pinot and then Aligote also. So actually a number of things. So, yeah. So how did you decide what you, you, obviously Pinot Noir was the big push for you. How, how did you decide what else you wanted to, to plant and make? Um, well, I still do a little bit in Napa. Uh, I thought it would be very silly to just walk from something that we had been working so hard with for so long. Uh, but up here, really, I mean, my, my favorite wine to drink for both my wife and I for a long time has always been Rosé. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was my... I was very excited when getting up here to immediately get into the rosé world. Mm -hmm. um, but really, I mean, a little bit of Chardonnay, because I, I don't know why, if we're comparing ourselves to Burgundy, why we wouldn't be very big on, on making Chardonnay around here. Uh, and it's growing like mad. I mean, it's growing faster than any other varietal, I'm pretty sure. Um, so that was easy to do a little bit of Chardonnay and, and work with uh, the Wenty clone, which I'm um, really excited about. We used to work with that under Livingston Moffat. And um, so we got that in the ground, which was great. Um, so yeah, but really seven different Pinots or so on right now. So it's, it's Pinot heavy, you know, very Pinot heavy. <laughs> People get up here and this is my first tasting room that wasn't my home ever. Mm -hmm. So it just, I mean, the front porch of our house was always our tasting room. And uh, so it's kind of funny that we're in a, you know, nine feet, two inch by 24 foot uh, little, you know, tasting room, but it's, it's perfect. I mean, it, it, it does what it needs to do and people really enjoy it. Um, but when I show them some Napa wines, people get real excited because they, if they've been here for a few days, they've had like 45, 50 Pinots and they're very excited to have a little, <laughs> a little something else uh -huh. too. Uh -huh. So, um, you know, and I'll, I'm looking towards Washington because they're still fairly priced. And um, so we'll, we'll see where that all goes down the road. You mentioned the process of, of 
with your, working with your vineyards, figuring out what 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 the vineyard is gonna is gonna do, and then what you want to make out of it. Tell me how, what your winemaking philosophy is, and how what what it is you're trying to capture with with your wine. Yeah. So um, I hired as soon as I got up here. My first hire was Drew Voigt. So Drew is my consulting winemaker. Uh, Drew is fantastic. He's a Davis trained um, California guy. So he, although he's been here for I think 19 or 20 harvests now, and um, but he, we spoke a similar language, um, and stylistically, we we have similarities. Um, we both do vineyard designated wines from uh, from two different two of the same vineyards, uh, and our wines are extremely different. So we're, we still do definitely have our different styles. Um, the nice thing with working with Drew is he 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 just doesn't have much of an ego, you know, and I love it because. You go talk to other winemakers, and they're like, "This is how we do it. If you're going to custom crush with us, you know, here's the way it goes." Mm -hmm. And uh, not to bring up names, but there was a few of those that I interviewed, and uh, I already had a style that I wanted. I had a way that I wanted the wines to be made. Now Drew's talked me out of some of that uh, because I. Uh, I was used to talking to people about Russian river fruit, which is extremely different than any fruit up here. Um, and with the different, you know, with our different acids up here, there's a lot of things that, that just are handled differently. But, um, you know, I have a California palate, so you will not find my wines in that, you know, high 12 to low 13 alcohols. Um, this year, we had a little rain in September, so, um, we made this year. This was the first awakening for me of, oh, okay, we're in the great Northwest here. Because uh, <laughs> it was all looking perfect until that, you know, first week in September. And then with the storms coming in, we never caught back up. But 14 through 18 was stunning vintages that you could, hang time is, you know, you. You just uh, you could leave the fruit out there as long as you wanted. So mine mine are pretty. Um, they're they're darker, in a sense, um, in like definitely darker in color. But uh, I th still think they have a great uh, balance of acid and fruit. And um, like my uh, Monk's Gate Vineyard down in the Yamhill Carlton. Um, there I, have, I work with some triple seven. So that's more of that red racy kind of vibrant fruit. Um, that's more kind of my lighter style, where when you get to the BZ Vineyard down in the Old Amity, um, a little more whole cluster, a little more broader shoulders, and definitely darker structure, all pomard. Um, up here, um, at the Dundee Hills, we have uh, some triple seven out here, and I don't take any of that. That fruit, uh, that Drew gets that. Um, and that would bring the wine to a different direction, almost more like the Monk's Gate, where Pomard and 115 for me here gives a much darker, lush, rich, uh, definitely with some of that mountain influence, you get some of that um, tension in the wine as well. Uh, but they're definitely, um, it's definitely a big, rich wine that we get off of here. So um, yeah, so stylistically, I'm just kind of, still playing to my California palate, I guess. So nobody's complaining yet. So I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> so if they like what I'm doing, that was the first thing. You take a mail list that's been going on for, you know, 25 years or even more actually, and say, hey, trust me, I'm going to Oregon. I'm going to start making Pinot. 
and all your cab followers are like, yeah, I don't really drink a lot of Pinot. And I'm like, just bear with me. And I sent them the, the Eola Amity Hills, the BZ Vineyard is the first one with a fair amount of whole cluster. And, um, and I, I converted people. So I've had very few people fall off of my wine club. And uh, so my retention of my customers has been fantastic. So. So we get more people drinking Oregon, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> so, yeah. So tell me about your tell me about your uh, your thoughts on Oregon, your initial initial thoughts on Oregon, and also kind of your reception here in Oregon, coming coming from Napa when you did. Uh, what, how did you fit into the valley? Um, I would, if I could remember my wife's quote, I it would be perfect. But um, the doors opened. It was amazing uh, how much I got accomplished in the first six, eight months that I was here. Um, I did not expect whatsoever uh, to find the vineyards, to find like this vineyard here. Um, you, you don't just walk into town and take over, you know, uh, and it's teeny, but it's for me, it's, it's still a big vineyard. It's 2.6 acres of, of fruit and, um, you know, it. It's hard to find these little spots instead of saying, oh, I get row 17 through 20, mm-hmm. you know, but to find a vineyard that you can lease, control the farming, meeting Sterling. Um, uh, a guy by the name of Matt Novak works for Result Partners. Um, he's with the Spotswood family um, in St. Helena. And uh, my mom, uh, one of my mom's best friends, uh, Mary Novak, who sadly passed away about a year ago, but she started Spotswood. And um, so he was up here, so contacting him, um, knowing Danielle Andrus, and then getting to meet um, um, Laurent through, through her was um, a nice door that kind of opened up. Um, Drew, I found pretty quickly, uh, and he had connections to a lot of vineyards, and he was the one who introduced me to Sterling. Um, so, you know, it just, it was just remarkable. Um, you know, Result Partners had just let go of Monk's Gate. Uh, they were taking, uh, farming all that fruit, and it was all going to Laurent. So Laurent told me, oh, well, that's available. Um, and they're switching growers, and so um, that was a nice in there. Um, so it was pretty, pretty fun, you know. <laughs> so it was more than like, okay, I just got to learn. I got to go taste. I just, you know, got to go to, you know, Patty Green and do the 19 barrel tastings, you know, and you know, taste through all that and start learning about clones and the vineyards and locations, and um, so. But yeah, and so that I would say, um, you know, everybody said change your license plate as soon as you get up there. You know, I, you, you know, when you get up there, get that California license plate off. I think I met more Californians than Oregonians in this business when I first moved up here. It took me like a, a year and a traffic ticket to get me to change my license plate. <laughs> like the police officer reminded me that I only had three months to do it, and I was already here like a year. Um, so yeah, it wasn't. It, it was um, you know very open arms. So wine wise, that was the bigger challenge. Uh, as I was going around all the wineries and tasting, and you know there's many wines to me that tasted almost like a silver tequila. I mean, it just I, my palate was so not used to that much of it. I would have uh, Oregon wines on occasion, 
and was um, and that was really fun. But when you go out and you start like, well, I, I want to hit four wineries today, and you're trying that many, your fatigue, your palate fatigue goes a different direction than what I was used to. Um, so that that was really an interesting. Um, uh, just something I didn't expect, I guess, is that, you know, in the beginning I was finding all these wines and I'm like, why are they doing that? You know, and then watching a harvest go through and watching a vineyard right next to the one that I'm at pick two weeks, two and a half weeks before I pick. Like, you know, at first I thought they were doing sparkling wine or something. I didn't know what they were doing, <laughs> why they were picking. Um, so it was, it was really fascinating to kind of really dig in because I wasn't paying that kind of, that, I didn't have that kind of focus on the industry up here because I was just a consumer. Mm -hmm. um, so then you come up and you really start digging into the meat of it all. Um, and you start realizing, um, you know, again, playing back to the, how you can make Pinot. Uh, my, my very first year I do a wine called Concepts uh, and I've been doing it for a long time. Um, started, I think my first concept was uh, making Syrah with and without Viognier as a co-ferment and showing people because we always co-fermented and people would always ask why and I said well I guess the best thing to do is to show you. So I would do a barrel of each and show and do the, my concept shipment. Uh, first one I did up here was with the Monk's Gate Vineyard and I went in and picked in early September a ton of fruit and then went back in and picked the rest of it in, uh, it was a month and a day later. So, because what if Mother Nature did come in? You know, what do you make? How do you make it? How's it done? Wow. So we did an early and a late pick and uh, it was fascinating. And I send it out, the response was amazing. And some people love the late, some love the early. I mean, it's really, uh, with food, the early pick was, I think, people's favorite. And if they were just sitting on their porch, they would like the, the late pick, you know. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty fun. So I've done a lot of those single barrel bottlings just on developing ideas and, and showing people what I'm doing and what I'm, what I'm trying to learn in the process as well. And why I like, what I'm doing versus the other style. So, true. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit. I'm curious in your, just in your personal experience, your personal perspective, uh, the difference between the, the California industry that you were working in and aware of and, and left, and the Oregon industry that you came into. How how are they similar? How how are they different? Is anybody in Napa going to watch this, or is this? A <laughs> I mean, if, if they want to find us, they're more than welcome to watch. <laughs> no, I'm playing. Um, I feel like the industry here, um, it's it's developing very fast, um, but it definitely felt when I first moved here more like the industry I remember falling in love with. Um, the industry that I left. I, I really would have a hard time saying that about it. Um, it too, too much money, too much, um, got a little too cutthroat, a little like, you know, look at me kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, people trying to create images, whether you're wearing a, you know, I mean, you have all the classics, like say Mike Gergich, mm -hmm. he always wears his beret and that's him. And, but he did that long, long time ago and that's perfectly great and that works for him. People are trying to do that 
like you know wearing an ascot in the middle of summer or you know whatever it is you know and it's just it just changed i remember having an intern um, work with us that was um, that then later got in the business and found good backing and i was really excited for him that he was starting his own winery and i used to send him all these people you know that would come up and like oh where are you going I'm like oh you got to go down here and you know they're new but he's fantastic and worked with us for a couple harvests and um i ran into that person later uh and i'm like gosh you know you haven't really sent anybody up you know are you getting all those people on sending down and so he's like yeah well we're in i kind of have a marketing group and we only refer to each other and we're, we're you know we're trying to create our own image and and i was just like it's just put a bad taste in my mouth to put it politely mm -hmm. um and there was a lot of that going on and um yeah, it just didn't feel sincere, uh, communal. Um, all the things that I loved about the industry, I felt were kind of disappearing. So, uh, but I, you find that here at, around every corner. You know, we do have you know, big corporate moving in, and um, which I, I think we need. Honestly, I probably have a different viewpoint than a lot of the people that have been here a long time on that. Um, you know, I think that this industry, the organ industry, is um, needs help, and we can't just all be the small producer with our little with our handful of customers. We need when I go to North Carolina and I open up a wine list and I see, you know, four Oregon Pinots and still see two dozen California ones, for me, that's an issue mm -hmm. that we need to conquer. And, and uh, the best way to do that is to have some of these deep pocket marketing hand kind of wineries come in here and that have those distribution channels that will get more exposure to our state and what we do so um, so I'm, I'm not afraid of it I just hope it doesn't happen too quickly you know I think it would be nice if it was a slow process but you know with Kendall Jackson and Silver Oak and Nibam Coppola um, different French companies coming in it's it's happening pretty quickly right now so and the fires and the lack of water and that's probably not helping so, Not at all. Yep. I mean, I just had a, another um, another friend from down there that owns a nice winery in, in Napa uh, call me this weekend. He's like, hey, are you around for a tasting? Well, I was at a basketball tournament, but I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> He's like, oh, you know, I'm seeing a friend, but I'm looking at some land. And, you know, so. Nobody vacations here in December intentionally. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> interesting so, but you know I think we're I think we're in a really good place um, but I, I think there's some rocky roads ahead here uh, just with a lot of there I mean you look around I mean Napa's full yeah you can't go cut down trees and open up hillsides and put more vineyard in but here you look like oh that would be a good vineyard site oh that would be a good vineyard i mean it's everywhere you know then so um we can overplant, which i hopefully we're not to that point but we need more distribution to make sure that we're not so well, while we're on the topic, what, what, what do you see as, as you look ahead for Oregon then? What are, you, what, are you, what are you predicting? What are you hoping? What are you maybe concerned about as you look ahead for uh, Well, I mean, that's my biggest concern, uh, you know, this seeing people 
Yeah, sorry, elder bugs. They, oh, good. That's warm in here. <laughs> that's warm in here. They found us. They're all, yeah. But um, you don't worry about the overplanting of it all. And I think it's really, uh, it, it just would be easy to do. And so I don't know where, we have a, a lot of good data in Napa and we're starting to get more of it here, but you know, how backlogged are people? You know, mm -hmm. and things like that. So, I'm going to turn this heat down a little bit. Okay. Um, we'll get a little ringing going. Um, so, that, that's that's a big concern. Um, you know, we need more international exposure. I think too to try to draw those uh, buyers in. Uh, it's very interesting. I think Seattle, I think Washington and Oregon rely very heavily on the locals. Where uh, Napa people are flying in from all around the world to, to buy and drink wines. I think we need a little more of that around here, personally. Um, but it's all. A lot's happened in the last five years since I've been here, and in the last ten years, I can't even imagine, you know, the change and the advancements that we've made in winemaking, um, you know, climate. Uh, you know, my dad's a geologist, so he looks at our life as, you know, a smaller than sand on the on the big picture. So, uh, to talk climate change, he would struggle a little bit with that. Um, but we are definitely in a trend in which we're warmer right now and um, the last four out of five vintages kind of show that. Um, so uh, we're definitely, my concerns aren't with weather and winemaking. I, mean, I think we got that going pretty good. We've had a great run. So you obviously have a, a, a pretty small operation here at Moffitt. Tell me about how you how you logistically handle all, all of the all of the needs you have. Uh, you mentioned obviously obviously Drew and Sterling playing a role in that, but yeah. So tell me about how how, how you're running Moffitt up, up here and, and um, pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, what I I did get rid of three labels when I moved up here because uh, I remember my wife telling me one day that I was doing a pretty good job with all of them and it just that stung you know like oh okay yeah um, I, I love to create uh, it's I just I don't know my mind's always trying to do something different creative thinking of new labels and ideas um, but I'm trying to reel that in and uh, and just focus on my Moffat brand right now and um, but yeah no I mean I have a bookkeeper that probably gives me maybe five hours a month um, but I otherwise and then Drew um, which is great and you know the babysitting of the wine is we don't do a lot here you know I mean once the once the wine's in bed it's in bed until you're basically ready to bottle besides topping um, we don't do over vintage, so we're getting the wines out just before the next harvest. So once we're kind of done with that process, it frees me up to do more marketing and sales. Um, this was a big deal, getting this little tasting room together, uh, just to get more locals. And, and that, going back to that, it, I didn't realize that that was the industry. I just thought all wine regions had people like the Napa Valley has, and, and we don't. 
Um, you know, matter of fact, tomorrow night I'm hosting a little a tasting in Portland mm -hmm. uh, to try to get more locals. And so uh, that's been a little bit of an adjustment. Uh, I do sell a little bit out of state. I sell in the Carolinas and in uh, West Texas. That's all my distribution. So West Texas, Amarillo, down to Midland. Wow. So I, I run that little oil stretch um, and then uh, both North and South Carolina. So, um, so my focus is really on uh, direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. So on right now I'm about 85-90% direct-to-consumer. So production's small. Uh, I didn't want to come up here and just assume that I knew what I was doing and could take on the Pinot world and that all my customers would just buy it all up and it would disappear. Um, that would have been heaven. Um, but I right now, well this year we had a shorter crop, but this, this the 19 would have I would have increased my production by another 30 to 40 percent this year. Uh, I didn't quite get there, uh, but I, my current releases I get is about 900 cases, so I'm still very small. Um, but and that was that was intentional. My wife has a good job, thank God, uh, because this is a hobby size. This is not a sustainable size yet. But you know, in the wine business, you can't just make more because that was a good one <laughs> so uh, and I wanted to be real cautious on how I started and I didn't never taken you know Oregon wine or Pinot to the market so I didn't know what the response was going to be so uh, but growing in this new vineyard uh, just got all first fruit off of this year so um, that will that will double my production for sure so so you obviously you had a, you had a, an interesting background in terms of having marketing sales experience that, that a lot of winemakers don't when they start their when they start their brand. Mm. Tell me about selling wine and, and what you what you what you had found and discovered. And then, like you say, as you take Oregon Pinot Noir to market, what is what about it is different and and and, and what do you see it, it changing into perhaps? It's a good question. Um, this is such an industry of relationships, and so. I found out there that it really didn't matter what I was making as long as I was producing of the quality that was expected of me, um, that I, I just didn't run into a lot of resistance. So um, now you got to make your slot, uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, going to sell in the Carolinas where I've been selling since I got out of college. Um, they, I never missed a beat with it. So unfortunately I wasn't making enough of my single vineyard wines to really offer that to them and I'm just starting to offer sure. that to them now. So, um, but the, the sales side, I think it's more about how many labels there are now. Uh, that's the biggest struggle in my mind. I mean, there's just so much wine out there. It's, it's just remarkable. I mean, for years when I was still down in Napa, I would go into a wine shop and grab something like, what, this is Napa? Who's this? You know, and um, just remarkable how many labels, not wineries, but labels, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, the same's going here. So it's, it's really about networking, you know, and getting more, more people. Mm -hmm. 
it's kind of the bottom line of it really I mean the nice thing is I do have really good relationships when I when I travel to my out-of-state locations I'm usually staying in people's homes because uh, I've known people now long enough mm -hmm. uh, I used to sell in New York and I hated it because you go there and it's like a bad groundhog day I mean you know you walk into the restaurant you've been selling wine at forever but every time it's a new buyer so you start all over when you go out to Amarillo it's the same guy <laughs> and you may be staying at his house or he may be throwing you a party that night you know kind of thing and so that's what I prefer I prefer that that nice small relationship based kind of um, situation so yeah. so as you you talk about growing production and obviously having your vineyard here will, will change that as you grow your production is the plan to stay direct to consumer as much as possible or, or are you going to expand beyond that um, I, I need to open more more states without a doubt um, there's there's something about getting that nice check when somebody buys a pallet of wine versus four bottles um, and when the four bottles only come in every so often or something in a bad you know week or winter um, yeah you, you really do need that cash flow I mean and that's you know everybody will say that's a struggle of this industry is is managing your money and, and the cash flow of the industry I mean you know so um, hopefully next year I'll open two three more states um, my, my growth is there enough to do that it, it doesn't help the bottom line but it will help it in the long run so um, but yeah my growth will be within the Malaris vineyard uh, it's adjacent to Bergstrom mm -hmm. um, and Delancelotti it's kind of pinched in between the two of them um, beautiful site um, and then just having all that diversity in one spot will be really fun so it lends itself to the direct consumer um, where you know going in and doing one big site would and making one wine really doesn't lend itself to uh, the direct consumer kind of sure. setup. So um, yeah, so you know have a lot of different labels, but they're all still Moffat. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the key. I need different colors though. My M's, all my vineyards have a different color M. Uh oh, you know, because you figure when people are drinking it, they're like, oh, I had that great Pinot of yours. And like, yeah, I did seven. So, uh, you know, which, which one? Was it a red M, a blue M, a brown M? But, you know, so uh, it's helpful, you know, really helpful. So, uh, but yeah, I, I actually bottled, this is hilarious. I, the Wente Chardonnay out of that Mallers Vineyard, I, my current one is like a teal M. And I couldn't come up with a color, and I have all these different colored ones. I never made a decision, but I had to bottle it because I wanted to preserve the freshness of it. Uh, the Wente clone's real tropical. It's really, really a fascinating clone where the Dijons are more of your melon and citrus, but but the Wente with those chicks and hens, those little small berries, get real tropical pineapple, banana, those kind of uh, components. So I need to bottle it. So I, it has a back label, but it has no front label on it right now. <laughs> so I'm gonna have to hand label the the first vintage because I couldn't make my mind up on what color to do it so which I still haven't so kicking myself but at some point you'll wake up in the middle of the night and you'll just know you'll know the color it's supposed to be yeah 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 so if uh, someone came to you and said they wanted to join the Oregon wine industry what would you what would your words of wisdom be what would you tell them uh, well I, I think it's kind of rings through uh, going all the way back start with the vineyard mm -hmm. you know I 
I think I've talked more people out of getting into the wine business than I have, or getting not getting into it than mm -hmm. getting into it. Mm -hmm. um, it's you gotta love it. You really gotta love it. And if you do, then come right on in, and, and I'll, I will introduce you to everybody. I will pay it forward because mm -hmm. it has been definitely um, that way with me. And uh, and I've done that. I mean, there's actually, it's a great story. Uh, Tim Duncan with Silver Oak, when I first got started and graduated from school, I called him up. We used to go to dead shows together. And I called him up and I said, you know, hey, I'm gonna be helping my parents out. I'm selling in California, you know, can you help me with any leads? Or let's, let's, let's have lunch. So we go out and meet up with him at lunch and he shows up with this thick binder of accounts and they're listed A through C on how their payments are and the volume that they do and then broken from restaurant to retail. And he starts going through and I'm taking it. He's like, you don't need to take notes. This is your copy. All the contacts, phone numbers, everything. Holy Unbelievable. Wow. You know, and here I'm jumping in to my parents' winery with two Cabernets. Silver Oak is two Cabernets. Our price points were about the same at the time, you know, but obviously we weren't a threat. You know, Silver Oak's still going to sell their wine. Mm -hmm. But that kind of openness was amazing. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, I'm like, Tim, God, what, you know, what can I do for you? And he's like, you know, just help somebody else down the road. And a girl by the name of Jenny Green that I went to college with started dating a gentleman by the name of Fritz Stolmuller. And Stolmuller Vineyards over in Sonoma. And she called me out and she's like, my boyfriend's clueless on this stuff. I mean, he really needs your help. Uh, do you mind meeting with him? And I set up a day of appointments in San Francisco and met him and we went around with his wines and I introduced him to a bunch of people and gave him my list of accounts. And it was that was my time to actually be able to do the same for somebody else. And that was years later, but it was, um, you know, I think that's what makes this industry so fun and unique. So there's a lot of people willing to do that. So, so yeah, so I would help anybody out that wanted to come in, but I would first warn them a little bit <laughs> of, of, you know, what exactly it takes. Mm -hmm. You know, as I've seen many people come in and go out just as fast. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, there's some challenges to the wine industry. Um, What's maybe something, since you, since you have such an interesting perspective having basically grown up in the industry, what's something about working in wine that maybe people outside the industry would be surprised by? What, what is something that those people maybe didn't, weren't expecting when they came in and then went out? Uh, I think it, it comes down to sales. I think they, they just think the wine sells itself, you know, and, and, and the attitude of, um, you know, of people like charities and things like that, where they're just like, oh, well, we only need like four cases, you know, or we only need a big bottle or, and when you have, you know, 50 of those people asking you all the time, it's like I could, you know, you could give away your, you know, everything you make, you know, without a problem. And I, I think that, um, I think people think wine just kind of flies out and they don't realize how much competition there is and, um, and how hard it is to, um, you know, I mean, when I buy wine, I'm on a number of different wine clubs, but I rotate them because all of a sudden it starts backing up in my cellar. I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, I got a wall of Patty Green, you know, and I, I just left their wine club, which really made me sad, but it was, I literally probably have 
you know, eight cases of their wine in my cellar right now, and I, I just, I'm waiting on them <laughs> to drink them, but I don't need more because I'm not really keeping up with it. So, uh, and, and I think people think that their friends are all going to jump in and buy, and that, that's really not true. Um, you know, the, my amount of friends in my wine club is, you know, um, it's a small percentage. It's, you know, you, you need to find people that are just really true wine consumers, I think. Uh, but starting with a vineyard, that's, that's fun, you know, and you can lose your money, but you can also sell it. So and then you're not getting backed up with inventory and all that good stuff. So as you, as you look back, is there what, what are you, what are you proudest of as you're in your time in the in the wine industry? What, what, what's something that you're an accomplishment you're, you're proudest of? Um, you know, I guess it's um, really probably the relationships that I've made, and um, and then I've been around a pretty long time now. So you know, it's funny when your parents are still alive, you're always the kid. Uh, so I still feel like a kid, but I'm 50, and I jumped into this business professionally when I was 22. So I've done this longer than you know over half my life, um, and I've watched a lot of people start and crumble or sell or do whatever. Um, I moving up here was a shot in the arm for me. Uh, I got me completely rejuvenated into the industry. Um, it's been really exciting, scary, uh, just kind of turning on all your senses. And and um, I guess uh, I'm proud that I still love what I do, really. Uh, there was definitely a, a phase in Napa where I was selling widgets uh, and it just got to sales because we were growing and got bigger and uh, with the economy crash and things um, things got tough but that was the only time I think I ever felt like oh my god what am I doing uh, but I really haven't felt that way at all and here I'm still looking I just there's so much more to do still um, and yeah, you know, I just I have to wait for the next harvest, and it is, <laughs> I don't have enough play tools, you know, <laughs> where like somebody like Drew, where you have a lot of different customers, and uh, is getting fruit from all over, and you know, but I'm still so small that there's only so many things you can try each year and do, and, um, and more fruit and clones, you know, trying I'm still trying to hunt down a few different clones, and um, so yeah, that's fun, you know. I love that side of it. So. so all the questions that I have for you today, is there anything uh, I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Um, no, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, we were talking about the industry here. And one thing I, was, I remember thinking when we started talking about it was, um, I, I saw it happen in California with, with Syrah. Uh, immediately everybody came out with a $45 and above. Um, you know, I think one thing that this industry is missing here is actually a, a the, the bigger real affordable price point. I mean, we do have Erath with their, um, what is that burnt orange kind of label? Mm -hmm. I think they do, you know, a quarter of a million cases of or something like that. I mean, that uh, we need a few more of those. I think um, to just get wine to everybody and show what we can do um, you know it was uh, the beginning stages wine style here 
um, turn some people off and turn some people on, but they're, um, we're, we're making different wines now, I think, than, than at least the ones that I remember from the past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think we need to show off that a little more, but we need to be able to be at that price point. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I first got out of school, I started, I was doing negotiant wines. That was my C&T Cellars. Uh, we had some fun, I did Skinny Dip Sauvignon Blanc, Backyard Shard, Patio Pinot, uh, Rooftop Red, Cabernet, um, Tailgate Zin, whatever, and um, anyway, did all these fun, but they're all $20. Mm -hmm. I figured, you know, 20 bucks in your pocket, you know, you can get it from an ATM machine, it's one bill, you know, and so I, that was how I was trying to get all my friends hooked, you know, and get them kind of following what you're, what I was doing and drinking wine, just get them off of cocktails and beer, and drinking wine, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, as a, definitely when I started, um, you know, the U.S., our consumption rate compared to France or Italy was so small. Um, so, you know, we don't need all these mixologists and all that. We want more wine, you know, drink more wine. So, you know, but, um, but I, I think with the amount of growth that we're having here in the vineyards, we're probably going to, we're probably going to be creating that. Mm -hmm. And I think that will be a really big help is, um, is price points at, at my size. I can't do it. So I'm sorry. I can't volunteer to be the one that's going to try to do that. But, um, you know, there, but I think that's what this industry uh, needs a little more of mm -hmm. is trying to get that $20 bottle out there. That's a great representation of, of Oregon wines. So, all right. But um, yeah, I don't know. There's endless stories, but oh, it just, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, it's been fun to share it. And I'm so glad that I can, um, you know, be archived away for <laughs> one day. Uh, I, I mean, it, we were talking off camera about, you know, meeting the industry. And I think that's one of the most, uh, you know, unique things that, that is still available here is being able to meet the founders. Mm -hmm. uh, when I got started, in Napa, you know, those guys were all dead and gone. I mean, you still had Mondavi and you, you and Peter Mondavi still, you know, I mean, so there are some, but they're really the second wave. They weren't the, yeah. the, the real true um, founders. And up here, uh, I belong to a uh, lunch club called the Good Old Boys. And there's a lot of, that's where I had lunch with Dick and, um, you know, there's a lot of the old guys in there and it's so cool to be like, gosh, you know, I would love to go back in time and just know what was it like? I mean, how scary to come up here and this weather and just be like, we're going to go for it and just start putting grapes in the ground. Um, so it's, uh, it's fun that you're doing this because I, I think there's a, a lot of places where they've they've lost that window and you found it yeah. so that's really cool yeah absolutely thank yeah. you yes yeah that's it's and a, a treat for us as well of course to hear big and small new and old all the different stories we have yeah so. yeah so thank you so much for your time today thank for your you answers, for telling us your story Appreciate it, Richard. and we'll go thank ahead you. And let you off the hook okay thank you for joining us for this edition of the oregon wine history archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners donors and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. 
producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.